columnist for ZDNet, which we try not to hold against him at CIO Magazine. That's a rival <laughs> publishing company. I'm surprised they're still in business, but you know, <laughs> and they're Fran, still you are there. So gracious, you're overly gracious. God bless them. I wasn't sure Time Magazine was still in business, so you know, I'm I'm just not really up on things. He has also written thought leadership reports for our sister company IDC on project portfolio management, CRM, social business, and cloud computing. So I think we're ready up here. I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Let's have some fun. And remember, six CIOs in New York. We want seven here in Boston. Take it away. All right. Well, let's see. You know, I think Vol and I do this every week, and usually what we do is what we we have to do a kind of a remote fist bump. And the reason is that we have we're sitting about three feet apart, but they're separate cameras, and in the middle you can't see. So I think we need to do a fist bump that is an actual fist bump. So you, re can we, you really want to start with a fist bump? I think we should start oh, with a fist bump. Sure, so. <laughs> like, it's tradition. Sorry. <laughs> so. So we're here with two very interesting folks. Um, Michael is a venture capitalist, and Brooke is CTO of a, a company established back in the early 1800s. Uh, Michael, do you want to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm um, um, really built as a VC, but actually spent two-thirds of my career as an operating guy, and I built a series of businesses. And um, I like to share the most important thing about my background is that I've learned most from three things. One is from failing. Uh, the second is from predicting, and many times getting that wrong. And the third is from teaching, where I often end up learning more than I teach. And so uh, the joy of being involved in things like this is an opportunity to learn in regard to what this audience might be interested in. So it doesn't matter what I have to say, I'm very interested to know what you have. It's questions, and look forward to hearing from Great. And Brooke? Sure. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Um, my name is Brooke Lange. I'm the EVP and CTO for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, I came to the company about a year and a half ago, and I, I oversee sort of two sides of the house here, which we've brought in as one technology team. One is the enterprise CIO space, and that's about how we make our enterprise faster, quicker, and more nimble. Second piece is about how we deliver products and how we deliver our content to customers. Um, we're a world-class K-12 education company, and really sort of changing the dynamic here in this entire industry is in a, a, a big change, and so I think technology is core to that, and that's been exciting. And then prior to that, uh, for the first term of the administration, I was the CIO for the White House. Oh, that's very cool. Second uh, CIO magazine event where we've had CIOs of the White House on our panel. So. Privileged to have you here. Yeah, great. excited to be here. Thank you very much. So, Michael, two-thirds as an entrepreneur and a third as a VC. Yeah. You know, I, I would love to know in the audience, you know, where do you invest and what are some of the interesting areas that you're pursuing right now? So, I'm Where and why? Where yeah. and why? Yeah. yeah. The why is actually often more important than Yeah, the absolutely. Why. So, let's, <laughs> let's, talk, let's get to that agenda. Um, so, first of all, the why, given this is a CIO audience, is probably just so important. Most of what I hear from CIOs, and I spend a lot of my time with the pre Fortune 1000 CIOs, but some SMB too, is they're being asked to do more with less, of course, but they're also being asked to contribute to the top line, to generate new revenues, to generate new products and services, and so forth. And increasingly, the only way to do that is to actually get to their core competencies and effectively to ensure that they're not doing anything that would distract from that. So that leads to outsourcing anything that's not a core company. So that's the why. 
now let's talk about what the what is. The what that comes out of that is that people are expected to figure out how to get those outsourced services very efficiently. And that's leading to the cloud. Why the cloud? Well, if you think about it for a second, everything is becoming available as a service. And this mm. is how I invest. This is my investment thesis. It has been for nearly 11 years now. So everything as a service was not really a, a thesis that people could get their grip to grips with back 11 years ago. But the concept was very simple. Was that if you listen to what people are wanting to do, they want everything available as a service so that they can select specifically what they outsource or what I call outservice to other people. Let's pick an example. How many people in this audience love doing HR? Not. <laughs> I don't know anybody who loves doing HR other than the HR professionals. And even then, in most businesses, HR is not a full competence. So it's a classic example of something that is right for outservicing. And by the way, it's been outserviced for years or outsourced for years in the form of things like ADP. But increasingly, through everything as a service, through cloud services, everything in HR can be done as a service, whether it's, for example, recruiting, sourcing people from LinkedIn, it's mm -hmm. you know, managing candidates through um, particular systems or its benefits. I mean, I could mention all sorts of companies here, of course, uh, that are enabling those kinds of services. But in the end, the outservicing of HR is enabling any organization who does that to cut back to what their core competence is, whether that be manufacturing, sure. or product development, logistics. And so the thesis uh, that I invest behind is very simple. It's everything is a service, and I'm looking for any part of the um, potential value chain of any business that can be created as a cloud service. And how I can invest in that is usually at three layers, applications, the infrastructure behind it, mm. and ultimately all of the support services that enable that to be delivered at scale and uh, used by, by CIOs or uh, line of business users in the enterprise. Excellent. Excellent. Sense. It makes sense. I, you have some incredible slide shares that speak to your mm. investment thesis and where you focus. I mean, thousands and thousands of views, so I suggest you look up Michael's uh, slide shares. And I believe in one, you listed like nine inhibitors to the cloud. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty long list, yeah, and you had pretty good. deep paragraphs per. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you talk about you know core competency, focusing on that, and outsourcing what's what, what's not a focus here. But can you talk a little bit about these these inhibitors? Sure. So I'm I'm going to shortcut because I don't think we want to spend the whole session giving sure. a slideshow for Sure, sure. I'll just say that if you if you Google future cloud computing, you'll find it the broadest industry survey. So 72 collaborators, everybody from Amazon and Microsoft and uh, you know, sort of smaller tier players like, for example, Nardware and others all contribute to this. So it's a very broad survey, it's by far and away the broadest industry. So these are not my thoughts, so just to be clear, all I'm really doing is bringing this data together. So where these nine inhibitors come from is the customers of all of those uh, 72 collaborators. And what we hear will not surprise you, but I'll pick one that will surprise you. Uh, so one of the inhibitors is absolutely nothing to do with technology. And it is um, the alignment of the organization to adopting these new technologies. So what do I mean by that? Well, um, it's, it's interesting listening to the, the Dalton story. So it's, it's fun listening to Jack. I mean, obviously, he's got a classic challenge. You know, he can, for example, bring in a new mobile app, but he's got to get his franchisees to adopt it. Well, now imagine you have that in your GE, and you have hmm. you know, several different lines of business across, sorry, several different businesses, and then dozens of different lines of business across you know, many continents, et cetera. 
It doesn't matter if somebody introduces a brilliant new mobile app or a great new cloud service. The, the number one inhibitor is how you get the user to actually adopt it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier, so I'm going to give the stage over to Brooke because I think he's got something really interesting to say about this. The real challenge is actually making all of these technologies usable at a level that a customer, in this case, you know, an internal employee or maybe an external customer, can actually engage with them and really adopt them quickly. Absolutely. And so that has finally dawned on people as being right. the biggest inhibitor for all the great technology that's underneath it. And I know, Brooke, you have yeah. some of the sales. Yeah, but yeah. Brooke, your, Brooke, your company was founded in 1832. Yes. And here you are, <laughs> very involved with technology and innovation, but at a company that I'm sure has very well-established processes. Yeah. So so adoption, I'm sure, is yeah. a key issue. Yeah, and I think, I think the whole... I think, I think the whole point that Michael's saying here is that this entire industry, this entire ecosystem has changed. And that this opportunity of these new companies and what to look at is, and what our job is, is, is totally different. I, I believe that as a, as a leader in IT, CIO, CTO, your job is to change and deliver new technology and new functionality to your customer at least every three months. But the problem is you can't do that if you have to do an 18-month selection, you know, bid process, all of that structure. And, and so the better part of this is, is this new way in, which is your customer is pulling this stuff in. Right. As we were saying earlier, I'm not even looking at storage technology, not because like, you know, these big storage companies got in and, you know, I answered one of the cold calls. I'm looking at storage technology because one because hundreds of my customers already downloaded something and are using a technology for free and I just got to a point of like, whoa, we got to use this. And the question was then, like, should we run a pilot? And, I, and the point is, no, the pilot's done. Right. The pilot's already been run. It's successful. The usage is up there. And so, so this changes that whole, that, that whole role, that whole conversation, both with the sales team of the tech companies as well as, you know, how you work and how you think about new technology to bring into a company or how to move a company faster. If you have to do something with a day's training, you've already you've lost, right? So adoption in this case is built in because the the adoption took place before you got involved, in a sense. Yeah, the pilot got run before I got involved. Now, I mean, you know, if I was a very Machiavellian CIO, I would I would start planting ideas into the enterprise, and it's not actually a bad idea to get <laughs> technologies that I want to get in planted and driving. But unfortunately, I can't. You know, at this point. My job is a curation of this technology, and that, that I feel like that curator word is the hottest term now sure. in post-2010, and this idea that we're curating new technologies with a total architecture towards that future. I mean, there is a serious job into what is that future and how do you make it happen, but a lot of your pilot, your beta, your alpha testing is happening already in, in, in less controlled environments. But, but what about security? All of the, you know, yeah. in a sense, this is what you're describing is sort of anti-traditional IT-like. Consumerization of IT? The, the, the whole consumerization, cons yeah. I mean, the digital IQ of your customers and employees are so much higher in the last decade, whereby we talk about shadow IT, we talk about, you know, marketeers firing up a service if IT can't deliver. And, of course, cloud has enabled that. So the combination of mobile, social, apps, data, does IT even, or CIO, CTOs have a choice but to understand the trends and respond as quickly as possible to stay relevant? 
I mean, my thought is if you're going to sit there and be the no guy, you know, <laughs> good luck and look for a new job, right? Because eventually the powers that be will overthrow you. Mm -hmm. the, the second thing is, uh, you know, absolutely security is of the utmost importance, but I would say that the, and I would also say the baseline of security knowledge of employees and of your customers, that skyrocketed. Privacy awareness and concerns over data usage is through the roof in that, that I am like generally happy about sort of that, that is a standard base that has increased, especially in this last two or three years. And then I think our job is that data security, that data safety. Now, I would also say that as the curator, as the true architect of, of our tech solutions in the company, it's about also bringing that radical simplification and architecting this. That's great that this business unit needed that service, but guess what? You can't talk to the other business units because all your crap's in one application and all your other stuff's in all these others. So let's, let's now curate this and let's architect a solution where everybody can work. And, and think about doing this a lot faster and more nimble. So then if we look at this from an ecosystem standpoint, you're investing in these services that his users, that presumably are easy to use based on consumer style software, that as a result, his users are adopting, which is now forcing, a, forcing someone like Brooke to adopt a very different stance than a, a traditional CIO might. Well, the word forcing is quite what I No, it's, it's not quite the right term, <laughs> I guess. But coercing. I think you make a great point, which is we don't, we don't try not to, to ever invest in technology for technology's sake. So, hmm. you know, we're always trying to understand what impact will this make. So let's, let's tackle a really thorny issue that, that, that Brooke just brought up, because people always talk about the easy stuff. One of the hardest things is trust. Yeah. Okay, so security, I happen to grow up in the security world with Symantec, and, and I don't do any security investments. And you might say, well, why don't wow. I do that? Well, because I don't think people get up in the morning to do security. They get up in the morning to do their job, so I actually can't get excited about security anymore. It's great. It's a great place to make money. But where I really get excited <laughs> is when you can enable things that were not possible before. So let's talk about that in the context of trust. People will say, well, you know, we don't want you to collect my data because it's something that's extremely personal, and the more you connect about me, the more exposed I am. Then I'll say, okay. So when you're browsing on a site, you don't want us to remember what you purchased last time, or what your size is, mm. or indeed where to ship this. And they say, no, of course we want you to remember that. <laughs> so what you realize is that, in fact, if you can get this balance right between trust and obviously you know, utilization of data, uh, you can actually enable things that were just impossible sure. before cloud or cloud services mm -hmm. and personalization and commerce and all these other things. And so what my job is to do is to invest in things that were impossible without cloud or fill in the banks, sure. know, personalization or fill in the banks, digital marketing, sure. whatever. So that when a consumer comes along and they work with, say, or, or a vendor comes along, excuse me, and works with Brooke, Brooke says, well, anybody at Fort Investment is going to want this because it enables something that was just not possible before, it improves our experience with mm -hmm. customers. Right. It makes our employees more productive. We generate more revenue. We do it with less cost. Why wouldn't we do this? That's my job. Absolutely. Would, would, would companies like Uber be an example of service where you've combined smart devices, mobile, and cloud, introduce a whole level of convenience, and there's a trust element? And, yeah. and, and I think Uber's a fantastic example of a lot of things, but I'm going to pull out one, so, so thanks for the opportunity. So this is an example of something that's impossible without cloud. So that's the exact phrase I use. Not amazing because of cloud. Because impossible, impossible without cloud. So let me explain why. 
The first wave of cloud is what I call transition. Mm. The first front, um, the cloud front. And it was a transition of things like HR or CRM or e-commerce right. to vendors from you know ACG transitioning to demandware or you know Siebel transitioning to a Salesforce. The second cloud front, which is only just starting, is exemplified by Uber. And it ten is years later. Ten is years that a fair? Because mm -hmm. Salesforce.com well, 2003 to me is maybe a eleven since I wrote that thesis, but I think it's probably even twelve. Twelve since people wow. started thinking about. Okay. This. So it just takes a long time. We'll come back to how long it takes in, in a moment. But so the second cloud fund is what I call the um, reimagination of applications through cloud services. Mm -hmm. So, so what are, what's an example? The services that are available today, that we take for granted, are location services, uh, payment services. Yeah. They are things like communication services. And mm -hmm. what's born out of it is apps like Uber, which just would never be possible were it not for the fact that I can take a mobile device app, instantly pinpoint my location, instantly communicate with a nearby driver, instantly connect to and validate that I have a payment um, to, to book that car, and then boom, make the transaction. It's impossible without Uber. That's true. Now that's exciting. That's the second cloud front. And just to give people a sense of how extraordinary this is, there are 11,000 APIs today. When I first started doing my survey, there were, there were a few dozen. Hmm. 11,000 APIs. Now think about the permutations and combinations of applications you could create with 11,000 APIs without you writing a single line of code. By wow. Way. So you know, most CIOs I talk to today are thinking about, well, how do I develop something? I say, stop. Mm -hmm. How do you avoid developing something and instead recombine what's already there and create something of what's already available to you? From the cloud. You're talking open That's source, or are you talking? Well, open source is an also exciting component of it. Okay. I won't go that for today. Okay. Uh, I'll go if you want, but sure. So Chromebooks in K12. I, I was at Suffolk University. One of the law professors had the students text questions during lecture, so because they were uncomfortable raising their hands, not like this audience, and uh, and the professor could see the questions and morph the lecture based on a wearable texting technology. So I feel massive disruption uh, in terms of adaptive learning and apps and mobile and, and cloud in K-12 and higher ed. Do you see that you know, transforming the way you think about bringing technology and shaping your organization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, technology is core to our business now. And we know that, that combined with great teachers and, and great educators and, and phenomenal school systems or anything that that teaching is going to happen anywhere and anyhow now, and that that is no longer a situation where it is a student in a classroom, right? It, and and it's it's akin to our other services, uh, you know. Speaking like Michael just said about about what's happening also in the other, in the the world of cloud services. You want to learn anywhere. You want to read anywhere. You want to get your email anywhere. You want to experience this. And now in K twelve, you want to do that. And then matched with the power of powerful APIs on adaptive learning, on different technologies, on making collaboration happen within a classroom or having collaboration happen between classroom to classroom. Yeah, makes sense. And making that accessible and scalable too so that, you know, think about all the different possibilities there. That's what actually gets me up uh, every morning about sort of how we can change for the better That's cool. this experience, this engagement, now you have you have a generation that was born without uh, that was born with, without the idea that touch technology never existed or or mobile right this this constant need for it where we have that constant need but we can remember when we used to have a flip phone and how do we do that um, 
but this this mindset now is just so exciting and it has such a true opportunity to make really lasting um, results through different ways and and I just think that the opportunity there is is phenomenal um, and building off what you said about APIs you know we um we think very similar in that same sense and not only just you know how do I not build a new internal app what can I figure out how can I reuse and redeploy some other smart stuff that someone else has solved this problem for and how do you do this in the education world how do you connect how do you allow a teacher or a student who has a great idea to connect to us and we can expand a, upon that or how do we have um, how do we build on this in this bigger ecosystem so that we can provide different services in a really differentiated learning process? So it seems like there are, th for, for both of you in a sense, it seems like there are three factors that are coming together. So we have the investment in these types of services, hmm. number one. We have the disruption that's taking place in the environment, which is changing your business. And then you have the uh, the change in the that's basically the talent pool mm -hmm. who have this growing expectation that software is going to function in a certain way, and it seems like you're both looking at those three things, but from from the investment the investment side and the uh, the purchasing side. Yeah, and I think you got to just ride that wave. It's the exciting wave. Right? This idea that you have either a new customer base that's hungry for it or a new internal customer that's, that's hungry for that change and a marketplace that's there. Right? I mean, I can't imagine life without Uber. Right? I, I love yeah, it. It's true. Right? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know, until your credit card statement arrives at the end of the month. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Right? Too convenient. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Should have walked. But that idea, but, but this opportunity there that, that no longer do I have to go look at a sort of buy a storage as that example. I don't have to buy a $2 million device to solve this problem in my multi-office location. I can just hire a service for 5 or $10 a month per user that can solve this. And guess what? If that service stinks, I can cancel that and replace yeah. it. No longer are these three or five year contracts. Three or five year contract is dead, in my opinion. I'm looking at two maybe three at the max, and an, always an out clause in this, because it should be a pay-as-you-go model. I mean, you don't like, like three-year like three implementation cycles where <laughs> you go to finance and you say, well, tell us what you need, because uh, three years from now, you're going to get it. That's a waterfall <laughs> mentality. In life, we're, we're an agile life now. I think, I think the entire world is, is built on this agile mentality now that, that one, I ask for storage, when am I getting it? Not you know, when will I define my requirements, when will we submit them, when will we go to RFP. We're in an agile environment, right? Because right now if I was sitting here and I wanted storage, I would open the app store and I would start looking for a storage app. Right? This, this workforce, this mindset, and this is cascading everywhere. This is not just a sort of in development or in engineering. This, and, and I think it's the same with my customers. My customers have requests on features and systems. I may not always have to build them, because I can always use an API to plug into someone else who's already done it. And I, I can do this faster and respond a lot more agile through that and, and, and do this through those users' eyes so that we can move quicker. We, we, we need to get questions. Until we get a question. I, I, I want to talk a little bit about, so Michael, you talked about focusing on your core competencies. And I think in order to reach productivity, it's important to scale out and scale up. And so I'm going to go back to the 
open source topic a little bit. I believe it was one of your blogs I read, Venture Capital Investments in 2011, nearly 400 million, and we're going to exceed a billion in, in open source this year. Why is it important for CIOs to think about the benefits of open source so they can improve execution velocity or agility within mm -hmm. their organization? Okay, so again, um, because there's a very detailed presentation out there <laughs> on the future of open source, um, I'm going to take a piece that's not often talked about, okay. which uh, I'm surprised when I talk to CIOs that, that few of them really understand. And an example of, the, of an organization that really does understand it is Fidelity. And what they get is that for recruiting and retaining talent, open source is critical. Now let's just stop and think about why is that. Well, it turns out that uh, employees today in developing, for example, any kind of system, whether it's internal or external, want to be involved with the latest technologies. And some of the greatest innovation is happening in open source. So for example, in big data, it's Hadoop. Or you know, if you looked at, for example, what's going on in the 3D world, mm -hmm. you know, 3D technologies, um, 3D printing, all happening in open source. Or um, many of these different areas, for example, collaboration with some of the greatest technologies, again, in open source. Uh, projects like Drupal, for example, right. uh, which I've backed. Um, there are just so many innovations happening first in open source. So developers want to work on the latest, greatest thing, and usually that's in open source. That's the first thing. The second thing is they want to contribute back. Right. The, the workforce Gen X, Gen Y today really cares about making a difference. Sure. And so if you're going to retain the best developers, sure. they're going to want to contribute to open source projects. And so in many instances, what we've seen is open source maturing to a point where you know, why CIOs are thinking about right. mm -hmm. how do they make open source a core part of their DNA? How do they actually not only use it, but contribute back to it? That's a big shift, by the way. In the last year, I mean, I started that survey eight or nine years ago. And um, again, open source was sort of, you know, relatively new at that time. But, but today it's in its sort of, you know, um, maturing phase. Yeah. Sure. And yet there's still, you know, great innovation happening. So recruitment, retention, and also personal branding for the developer. Branding, and, yeah. and, this, and by the way, many enterprises are now themselves getting tremendous kudos right. for the fact that they've you know, contributed to projects. So even competitors, you know, for example, in the auto industry, sure. contributing to the Jamibi sure. initiative to cut costs on things like the development of the uh, you know, electronics within the, the car industry. So sure. it's a fascinating and vital part of the next generation of IT. How many CIOs in the room? use open source as part of their development strategy. Okay, not a lot, not a lot. So it's, it's well, I encourage. More raising their hands. Okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> but yeah, there, again, another plug for an incredible slide share from Michael that you definitely want to take a look at. That speaks and to the research. I'm also, I'm wondering how many people in the audience are finding this level of change and disruption to traditional IT processes as Brooke was describing inside Houghton Mifflin. I mean, it seems to me what you're doing is uh, more on on the cutting edge than than the industry as a whole, industry of CIOs. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts about that? Comments? No, but all right. <laughs> Later in the afternoon. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> so can we do a kind of a you know a rapid fire comments on a set of technology categories? and get your input. Um, and we'll start with social and collaboration. Table stakes. Got to have Table stakes. Table stakes now. I mean, I, I just think if you're not working in collaboration and you're not working, and, and we'll take, I think social and collaboration 
kind of get blurred together mm. as they are the category, right? Sure. But I think social is a whole different way of sort of both, you know, communicating with your internal workforce and also there's a whole marketing data analytics whole piece on that. And I would say on the collaboration piece, it is such a broad topic, but such um, you know, such a critical piece in how you rethink how you're going to communicate. You know, as I prepared for this, I asked my team on on our internal sort of uh, um, conversation system without naming products, right? Is you know, hey gang, what are the what are the technologies that you care most about? That that are you that you're concerned with? This is you know, emails as much as I I mean I emails not dead. I can tell you that just by my inbox. Somebody told but, me it's for old people. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I don't know. But I, I don't, do don't want to read too much into it. Is that like I, over thirty-two or something? Yeah. <laughs> Twenty-six. Yeah. But I think that you know, it's it's an you have to figure out how to do that and how to communicate differently with this workforce, how to attract a, a new workforce as you're sort of evolving here, and then you know how to get things done. More is this efficient. a CRM thing or is it just you know using other? I think public it's every, private social. I think it's everything. I mean, I think it's pulling in the public social networks and APIs, and I think it's it's bringing in a conversation that used to be two way or over email or five email conversation right. threads. God, I can't stand how many times I get thanks, right? And I do it myself, but but how do you do that differently and change the the way that a workforce needs to happen and how you can get more thoughts or different thoughts? Hmm. You know, one of the one of the best programs I had at the White House was an internship development program, and we built 40 apps in eight weeks. Like, outstanding. Oh, blew, blew the doors off of everything else, right? It only happened because the idea came from an intern. If you, if you keep these traditional channels of communication happening, you're not going to get that. You're not going to be able to open up those conversations or those ideas. And, and I think that there are, are just so many out there, and, and you, have to, you have to be accessible, you have to create that, you have to explain problems and not know who is only the subject matter expert that can fix it. Yeah, makes sense. Michael, Internet of Things. Or, or if you want to add comments to the collaboration piece. Uh, I'll add the collaboration very quickly, and then let's talk about the Internet of Things. So um, I completely agree, Brooke, that, that the, you know, notion of social and collaboration is table stakes. In fact, I go one step further and just add to it, which I'm sure you're basically articulating, which is it's going to be part of everything. So whether it's you know, social CRM or it's social yeah. messaging or whether it's social commerce, I mean, name it, it's going to have social and collaboration. Will we stop using social in a few years because it's just default? Like um, social business, social, it's just, it's just, or it's we'll, stop, we'll stop using it when people stop getting funding on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like when, when people move in my office and they think, so anyway, um, but there is one piece that is really exciting to me, and that is again, you know, what's not been possible before you had true social collaborative capabilities, and I think there are some really fundamental things that are still yet uh, not fully developed. An example would be crowdsourcing design, for example. Mm -hmm. Love that. There's Love an example that. where products and services are being built by the customers for the customers in a collaborative. You know, social and engaging form in I a way that. that's dramatically reducing yeah. time to market, I love reducing that. better products, yeah. reducing costs, and also ultimately even helping with go to market afterwards because people are buying what they Absolutely. Design. That's dramatically groundbreaking. I love that. And so I think there's still some things that we haven't yet seen. Sure. That will come, you know, sure. 
Okay, so internet of things. So actually, I'm sorry. Yeah. I just want so so there's there's this dimension of uh, co-creation between the the vendor and the customer, mm -hmm. in effect working together, even if it's the vendor supplying a platform that the customer is then yeah. using and then interacting with the platform. I was asked to rebrand our company in 90 days. Logo, color, topography. UCMOs have all the fun. No, <laughs> 90 days wasn't fun, but anyway, we did that. So what did we do, Michael? We actually um, worked with an agency, put a bunch of designs to the public, and asked for folks to vote on our on our on our new mark and logo. And it, the, the, based on the feedback, we were able to actually morph and come up with a design based on uh, crowdsourcing uh, the project, and we were able to deliver a new brand in 90 days. So in the future, if I would do something different, I would probably crowdsource the whole thing, like the entire design. This was more of a help us with the selection process. But the input yeah. we received was stunningly good. It was, it was really? unbelievable. Yeah. And uh, so the mark for Extreme Networks was based on a crowd input. So you know, really, truly believe the power of collaboration, which is not something we could have done you know, maybe in the past. So Internet of Things. Well, uh, so let's you know, talk about, again, what my job is, is to try to identify what's going on today and project 10 years out. If you think that's crazy, just remember that it takes me on average eight to nine years to get a company public to you know, $100 million plus scale to being a real business. So I have to be thinking that far out. So what I see is very simple, which is if you look at the sort of trends that are behind this, there's, it's basically this. You know, it took 10 years uh, for the mobile phone to get really broadly adopted. It's took, taken three years for the tablet to get broadly adopted. And it's taking months for devices to get as broadly adopted that are being used for everything from you know, the quantified self to healthcare to production line measurement uh, and so on. So I just think there's an explosion, a swarm of devices coming. And we all know it and we sense it, but obviously what's impl implied behind it is what gets to be really interesting. So, I think there are a couple of things that are really fascinating here. Um, first of all, you can't possibly manage those devices the same way you manage PCs and, and mobile phones even. And, and look at how difficult it's been just for the enterprise to adopt the bring your own device movement. It's right. been really hard. Sure. And I know because I've got investments in it and they're, you know, they're doing really well because it's a hard problem to solve. Yeah. Now multiply that by an order of magnitude again. I mean, we're talking about 50 billion devices probably in 10 years' time. So you know, at least an order of magnitude more than we have mobile phones. That's a huge, huge swarm to deal with. So different management systems, different infrastructure, different means of collecting the data, different means of synthesizing that data, different implications in terms of you know who accesses. You talk about privacy. Yeah. We're now on a different level when we get this. So there are all sorts of challenges. And every time there's a big challenge or a major disruption, there's a huge opportunity. So um, as an investor, of course, the next thing I have to remind you is that usually these things go in a cycle that looks like this. Huge boom, big bust, and then a really long build-out. Hmm. Long being, and this is why we were talking about it earlier, so you pointed out, it's been 11 years since I held my first SaaS forum with CIOs. And the first one I held heard, you know, SaaS is great, but it's for small, medium-sized businesses. We're never going to adopt this. <laughs> so I expect in about 10 or 12 years' time, we'll be sitting here talking about how the Internet of Things is actually coming to, to the enterprise. It takes that long. It just takes a long time for these things to get through this. Businesses have the talent and the skills. We talked about data scientists and data analytics as a 
core competency that IT needs to build and marketing and other lines of business with all these disparate management tools and the ex order of magnitude explosion of connected devices from your Nest thermostat to your Fitbit to your Nike shoes to whatever, glass, iWatch, you name it. How do you retool? You have McKenzie saying there'll be 190,000 data analyst shortage in the US by, by 2020. Mm -hmm. How do you build that competency within an organization, for yeah. example, as large as yours? So I think the first I think the first opportunity here is not to think that a data scientist is going to solve this problem or or we have to hire someone for that job. I mean, I think you know my mindset has been is that as we go forward, we need to drive data as a core competency into every new hire and retrain and retool the workforce with this. Exactly. Data and data curation and what you do with data. Gone are the days of I'm going to send you a spreadsheet and you figure it out or here you go, right? Here's a dashboard, I put it up online. It's now this whole new mindset that we have to get a base level of analytics. And I think a core competency across our workforce and our, our, our nation here to be able to deal with that, to adapt to that, and to think about that. And then, you know, as these tools get better, you know, it happens because a data scientist is not going to be able to constantly switch between sure. which area in the business is it someone's hiring better people and the data around how you hire a better employee and how that how all your data feeds can do that, it, it's, it's ultimately still going to be that person who knows that business to be able to curate, understand, and find that actionable piece right. of information. And we have a question. And my, I'm sorry that I didn't see you. I'm, I'm <laughs> aimed this way. So, so. Live here? Yeah. You are yes, live as live good. can be. Introduce yourself so, before. Will we... do. Uh, Dwayne Dumont, Next Stage Medical. Uh, thanks for taking my question. Uh, so I have a little bit of a, a long-winded question, so just bear with me. And probably CNN will have to fact check me after or something. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> um, so how? Uh, th my question is for Michael Skoke. And um, you, me you mentioned uh, disruptive technology. And um, one of those for you might be uh, crowdfunding, right? Um, I think hmm. the um, uh, first, I guess, has it changed the landscape for you? Uh, uh, might slow things up for you? I don't know. So you're asking whether or not crowdfunding, the impact on crowdfunding on his business uh, yeah, as on, a, his, as on his business specifically, okay. you know, that sort of thing. And uh, let me get a second part in, then I'll, I'll step back and let you answer. Um, so I think, and the reason, I'll, I'll tell you why. The reason I, I bring this up is I think uh, the stat was like 50% or just shy of 50% of the investment was coming in uh, as seed and early stage investment for VCs. And so with crowdfunding, does that push you out into a later stage of funding, potentially? So Michael, the impact of uh, crowdfunding on the VC business and you as an investor. So I think this is a fantastic topic. I'll be crisp for you to have this whole afternoon on. Yes, it's disruptive. Thank you for the question. Um, it's no, there's no question at the low end for companies that wouldn't necessarily found their way to the right VC. This is a good collaborative means for people to get access to capital and to get them going. No, I don't think it's going to put us out of business uh, <laughs> because um, good VCs are not about capital. They're about resources. And I can tell you that my scarcest resource is my time and energy and commitment to help build a company. And capital is a very, very small piece of that. 
The rest of it is the hard work associated with doing the hiring, the recruiting, the team building, the establishing the business model, figuring out how the channels and market. I don't have to go on and on. I, I teach a course on addiction, so uh, it's a favorite topic of mine. But uh, it's also a very positive thing in complement to VCs because just as I was describing for crowdsourcing things like designs or mm -hmm. products, etc., if you can get customers or partners or suppliers, and I've got many examples of this, um, to contribute to the capital of a the company, they're effectively putting their money where their mouth is, potentially participate in, in usage of those products or services that might get built. And I think that's very positive. So I'm a big believer in the and of crowdfunding. I think it's a great thing. It is disruptive, and there's still room for the real hard work to still be done by venture capitalists on top of that. Does that answer your question? Good. Great. You know, going back to, uh, thank you so much for your question. Uh, Mary Fran? Michael? Did you have a question? <laughs> you have a comment? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so, so we were talking about uh, data and analytics. And isn't there, uh, when, when you start infusing data and analytics through everybody in the company like you were, like you were describing, isn't there an implication for the company's business model? I mean, I'm thinking this Friday on CXO Talk, we have the chief digital officer of uh, GE Power and Water. And he's all about data. So there's this change in how the company can do business because of the data. So any, either of you, any thoughts on the impact of data on business model and company operations and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think I think from every aspect, I think I think we're in that infancy stage right here on where the data is. I mean, I, every day I, I I feel like once a day, once an hour, you hear a story about how data changed an experience, right? If it's your personal data, and I I love to talk about sort of my you know my new my jawbone and how it changed me as a sleeper, right? So I actually am incredibly mindful, and there was a a personal thing or, or my running watch that helped me change and steady a pace and figure that out. But the same same thing happens into companies. I think the gold mine in this new economy and the demand-based economy, the gold, man, gold mine in all this is the data inside our company and how we use that and how we first unleash it, you know, protect it and store it and keep our users' privacy um, sacred here. But but how we really figure out how to evolve from that and how we make either better product, new product, different system, I think that that is, that is critical. I mean, it, it's sort of, you know, you hear often that any company out there, I, I heard recently a furniture company called a software company here, right? And that, that everybody's a software company now. Software's eating the world. Yeah, right, right? <laughs> and, and I would say that, you know, my prediction being that soon enough we're going to hear every company be a data company. Right? From your light and power to your utility to, to a beverage company or, or, or anything else. And I think the opportunity with that data is how to harness it, how to build on it, how to grow, and, and really it, it's unlimited potential. Isn't that one of the benefits of digital business transformation is that you can have better insight and build perhaps, in your case, predictive models to ensure student success? You've got flip classroom, online courses, MOOCs, massive yeah, open online yeah, courses. Yeah, so yeah. you should be able to look at the student's learning trajectory and habits, what apps they use, what online courses they take, and determine students that are at risk, and then put 
prevention methods different to ensure resources that. to right. that. Yeah, I mean, I think the opportunity of data that is there. We released a, a, a product this year with the personal math trainer. And if you're not able to understand, in a simplistic example, 2 plus 2, and you get 2 plus 2 is 3 or right. 5, you know, the answer is 4 for those <laughs> who didn't get it. But, you know, you have an ability to either say, let's, let's, let's explain this differently. Maybe this is a video. Maybe it's audio. Maybe I have to explain it a different way. Let's try to get different resources. Or maybe this is a time that you need human intervention, so on and so forth. The idea can go on. And we have, we have you know, tons of products coming out that, that have that ability and, and products in the marketplace that are using data to help a better outcome. Absolutely. And that's the really exciting part of being in Absolutely. education right now and really changing that, where, where technology is not going to solve the problem, right. but it's going to aid in better outcomes. Michael and I surveyed CIOs in higher education asking them to define success. And these were handpicked, some of the best CIOs in higher ed, and student acquisition, student retention, fundraising, that what they listed as their success factors didn't have a lot or anything to do with technology. It was all about student well, it's a, success. The business. It was it's the business. The, it was the business. business conditions, and they were using data to uh, predict which students might drop out, right. for example because that's obviously has an impact on the student and it also has an impact on the core business of the university education and mm -hmm. revenue. Absolutely. Mary yeah. Fran, are there questions from Twitter? Uh, there are questions from Twitter. Yes. Oh, great. Um, as a matter of fact, it's from Dr. J. Uh, Alyssa oh. Johnson, the deputy CIO at the White House, has a question for Brooke. We have the White House watching mm -hmm. we uh, have the White House our watching. Boston event. Very cool. And the, <laughs> and the question we want <clears throat> Brooke to answer is, can the CIO and the chief digital officer be one in the same. Yeah, I think that's a, 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 so first for the question, and hello to Dr. J, um, she's a dear friend, but I think that that's a really good question. I, I um, you know, I, the chief digital officer, depending on what circle you are in, in the world of, of CIO communication, the chief digital officer is getting a lot of talk now, right? And I would say that, you know, and if you go to your your different sources. There's many different examples. Is this just a CIO and a CMO together? Is it a CTO, CMO? Is it a whole different thing? And a, the CMO and the CIO should report to the chief digital officer? What I think is that, that in, a, in an organization, I think that, uh, again, you know, the, the great thing about HMH is that uh, we don't see that it's one person's job to drive a digital transformation. It's not certainly just my job. And, and frankly, that's why we're so far along in our, our transformation. And we're actually iterating in that. Because I don't believe that the transformation ever ends. It's, it's this iteration process. And I think in this world that, that you can solve that with a title or you can solve that with a chief data scientist. But the idea is that it is an entire enterprise challenge. At HMH, we are all about how do we evolve, iterate, and move faster. How do we connect through social and use data to make better products, and how do we do that? Um, I do think that, look, as, as the leader of the technology team, it is my job to lead the technology, and I partner incredibly well with our chief digital officer, and we have a... a you have a, a chief digital officer. No, sorry, chief uh, marketing. marketing officer, yeah. and we have, a, um, we have an SVP of uh, data, uh, digital strategy, excuse me. Okay. And that partnership's really strong there. Awesome. But I, I think what's so critical, because it seems like most of the online writing is about this CDO will save us all, right? <laughs> yes. And I think it's all of us to save ourselves and you know to lead this transformation together. Absolutely, absolutely. 
So, Michael, you talked about learning from failure and being excited about, you're no longer excited about investing in technology. Are you excited about investing in data and analytics? And sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> this is a fun one because there's so much written about it. It's hard to say anything original, but, but I like to just compare and contrast before and after. Here. So, in the virtual world, it's very different. You can't see your customers. In the old days, they walked in the store or they, you know, you, you physically got a vision of your customers. So, you sized them up, whether you realized it or not, you were making assessments of, you know, sure. what their creed or color or anything <laughs> else was. Um, in the virtual world, beta is that definition of your customer. Right. And without that, you have no idea who your customers. So, you're interpreting. You're interpreting, you're, you're building up, a, in a sense, a 3D model of the customer based on the tracks, the digital tracks. So, so, why, so why is it when I walk into a retail store and I connect to their Wi-Fi and I start doing price checking with their competitors, they don't see that and insert a rebate in real time that says, we know you're in the store, we know you have a social footprint, so word-of-mouth marketing would be great if we land you as a customer. Here's a 15% rebate, buy the TV here rather than going to Amazon. Because all that technology exists. Yeah. I, I, so, I mean, showrooming is hurting a lot of retail stores, and, and yet they're not using the data to keep me as a customer. So... Well, you get that. And of course, the retailers are like that. Yeah. That is the chief digital officer's job. <laughs> right. All those technologies do come together, and part of the, you know, the, the world of commerce that I live in is absolutely happening. I mean, this business of omnichannel, right. omnipresent, uh, connecting with your customers, always on wherever they are, right. and you know, even if they're not in your showroom and somebody else's, right. that how to interact with is critical. But anyway, so I think that's that's the the data piece. You know, there is no customer without data in the virtual world. There is no definition of customer. The second thing I want to point out is, is building on what Brooke said, which is it's just a fundamental thing. It's, it's so fascinating. Is that you know we talk about having this this sort of like continuous relationship with our customer. Bullshit. I mean, you have no relationship with your customer. They're one click away from being your your, your customer, your competitor's customer. Yeah. So uh, it's know, so true. You can have the best product out there, the best service out there. That's true. Everything else is accessible to you immediately at the same time. But the loyalty you create with your customer is what we were starting to talk about earlier is based on your ability to understand them better than your competitor. And again, that is data. Yeah. And so you're either going to find ways to serve them better through data, or you're going to lose them. It's that simple. So we're almost out of time. We have a few minutes. And so how about if we close out by asking each of you, and also Mary Fran is the editor-in-chief of CIO Magazine, who has this tremendous overview, to share your thoughts and advice for CIOs who are uh, observing what's going on and want to push this type of innovation further inside their own organization. Should we start with uh, Brooke? How's that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, so one, thank you for having me today. This was a lot of fun. Um, I think that this uh, this new era, this new economy and, and um, new world that we live in is got to be a fast, quick, agile world. And that means that, um, that, that for us, we use, we've created a term called HMH Nimble, which is our own internal management system to, do, to take agile principles, just the broad principles, and apply it across everything. And I think that, that goes to so many different, that goes to so many different key points in the how the new world works is that you know you can't think that you're just gonna um, 
that you'll take 18 months to deliver a product, right. that you have to deliver working software quick. But you also have to be able to you have to deliver stuff quickly to your customers every three months, and you have to iterate and change. And you got to embrace that this is a demand-based economy, and that if my customers demand cloud storage on their desktop, that I better respond quickly, or I'm going to be unresponsive. And that's the change. And that and that goes to the vendors too. You know, in that whole vendor world, like I'm not signing a five-year deal anymore. Mm. Get it off my desk and think about it. One, why is it on DocuSign? Two. Let's get rid of the paper. And three, let's think about, you know, if you're not performing, then you should be gone. This should be that conversation, and it's a pay-as-you-go world. And, you know, I'm trying to, to, to build and deliver a, an iterative enterprise that can adapt to that pretty quickly. Sorry, is it hard to do pay-as-you-go, or is it more, are you more likely to have vendor lock-in with, let's say, a multi-tenant SaaS solution, like a CRM solution, where you implement, you integrate, you train... Yeah, yeah, okay. That's, that, we'll leave that for the next CXO talk. But uh, great question. <laughs> I thought that was one of the nine inhibitors. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I read the slides here very carefully. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I mean, I far be it for me to say what CIOs should do. What I hear when I start having CIOs is the biggest constraint you will have is that eighty percent of your budget is usually on just maintaining yeah. systems. So you've already heard my suggestion for that, which is. If you can out-service anything that wouldn't be a core competency, then do so and take more of that 80% to the 20% plus, hopefully, to innovate. And then on the innovation piece, you know, I would say the obvious, which is turn it on its head. Maybe it's not so obvious to, to point this out. I would look for things that you simply cannot do without the technology or product or service that you're introducing. And if you can do it, why are you doing it? Uh, because the technology should be a distinct competitive advantage, and that's where your innovation should be going. It should be giving you something that you can take to the CEO and the boardroom and declare victory with and show that you're making an impact on the top of bottom line of your company. If not, your job's at risk, and we all know that. It's just a changing world. You've got to be able to be accountable at that level. Okay, so we have agility. We have... Uh, focus on the core pieces that matter the most to the business. And Mary Fran, what are your thoughts? Um, thank you. I actually have one, one thought that has, has floated up throughout the day, and it was exemplified when the CIO of Liberty Mutual's global specialty business talked about doing a hackathon. And I think that the, the, the millennial factor in here, the youngest and most innovative members on staff, I think that sometimes CIOs get so caught up in all of the senior business issues that are going on at the top of the company that they may be forgetting to take the time to turn around and let some problem loose amongst your youngest staff members or some way to get uh, the youngest people in your company, maybe the marketing and the IT staff together and let them play at what they're doing. The fact that we have CXO talk here live at the events was an idea from our millennial staff writer, Lauren Brussel. And uh, Brooke mentioned that his one of his best ideas recently came from a younger member on the sure. staff. I would just remember, I'd say remember the innovative mindset that exists among the millennials and look into the hackathons. I think that yeah. those, I'm running into more and more enterprises that are right. doing it in a surprising array of businesses. I said that, that's one practical step I think everybody could try. In 30 seconds, I'll just say one other thing to Mary Franz is we did we did one recently, really great, and I would say everybody got really enthused. You know what I would tell you the the negative that came out of it was 
the other units, the non-tech teams, were really miffed that they weren't involved, that they couldn't participate. And I think, <laughs> don't think that technology only happens in a tech team. Absolutely. You know, unlock the power of your entire people. Absolutely. Great advice. So harness the passion. Yeah. The folks who care. Technology is everywhere. We all are technologists now. Yeah, adopt a beginner's mindset and embrace reverse mentoring, I think is important. Um, one comment before we conclude. Michael and I are doing a CXO talk at Gillette Stadium Tuesday evening, and we are inviting the CIOs of the Celtics, the Bruins, the Red Sox, and the Patriots, as well as the CIO of the NFL, to talk to us about use of mobile, social, and apps, and cloud to delight and, and improve the fan experience. It's at Gillette. It's a dinner event in CXO Talk. All of you are invited. If you're interested, just connect with me on Twitter or send me an email and look forward to seeing some of you there on Tuesday. It's a pretty, pretty cool event. Pretty awesome CIOs who will be yeah, there. Yeah, if you're interested in sports and fan experience and technology, the place to be. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And especially thank you our, to our guests. Thanks. You're great. Yeah. Part of the live experience. All right.